This is the Fatherhood Unlocked podcast, and my name is Dan Doty. I'm a father of three, an outdoorsman, and a meditator, and supporting dads to be the best version of themselves is my highest calling. Fatherhood is the biggest rite of passage in a man's life. It's our biggest opportunity to grow up, to wake up, and to learn who we actually are. I believe that a father's love is the biggest missing vitamin on the planet. This podcast is intended to be a lightning rod to call men to action, to create community, and to set a new tone and standard for what fatherhood means. Welcome to Fatherhood Unlocked. Eight and a half years ago, I watched for the first time a documentary called Grief Walker which featured Stephen Jenkinson and his work and words and experience with dying people, with death. And I remember that it was eight and a half years ago because I watched it for the first time um, in, my, in my then girlfriend and now wife's apartment. We had just met. I can't remember if I watched it uh, in the first couple months of our courtship, or maybe <laughs> a few months later, I moved in fairly fairly soon after meeting her. But I watched it alone in her living room, and I remember being just absolutely uh, just flattened and leveled by it. And I remember how how much beauty I found in it, and how it's hard it's hard to, to maybe put words on the feeling that I felt and. And then I read some of his books and was just very, very, very engaged with the work of of Stephen Jenkinson. And you know, since that point, some of my closest friends have become students of his and have, go to his orphan wisdom school and um, are really, really close with with him and his work. And I've I've been curious, but I've been on the on the outside a little bit. Today, I am just insanely insanely honored and excited to share with you a conversation that I just got to have with Stephen. And my suggestion going into it is, is listen, listen to the full thing. The entire conversation was, was rich, but something happened in the culmination or putting it all together. Um, this was a very powerful conversation from me. You'll, you'll be able to hear that. This is not me keeping my wits about me or keeping my shit together in any sense. Uh, it was actually a really deeply meaningful experience to me just to have this conversation. And so I'm not going to muddy it and so I don't want to say any more. I think I'll leave it just as that. But I do want to do a short sort of official bio and introduce Stephen <clears throat> with the... Uh, sort of fullness that, that he deserves. So Stephen's a culture activist, worker, and author. He teaches internationally and is the creator and principal instructor of the Orphan Wisdom School, co-founded with his wife, Natalie, into 2010, and convenes semi-annually in Deakin, Ontario, and, and Northern Europe. He has master's degrees from Harvard University in theology and social work at the University of Toronto. He's got a whole lot of work under his belt. Uh, recently, he is doing the Knights of Grief and Mystery Project with singer-songwriter Gregory Hoskins. Uh, they've, re- re- they've, they've released a couple albums uh, named Dark Roads and Rough Gods. He's the author of A Generation's Worth, Spirit Work While the Crisis Reigns. 
Coming of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble, and the award-winning Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. There's a lot more. Um, this man has had a, a, a deep and rich outpouring of his life experience. And um, please, you can check out more about him at orphanwisdom.com. He has a tour uh, coming up in 2023 with a ton of dates literally around the globe, all over North America and Europe and the Middle East, uh, probably more places too. And uh, I myself am looking for some tickets probably in Boston or Nova Scotia or something. Um, so please check him out. Again, the website is orphanwisdom.com. All right, there's two opportunities that I want to tease out here before we get to our conversation with Stephen. And the first is an announcement. This is the first time we're putting it out into the world uh, for the program called Fatherhood Ready. And this is this is one that I've been baking uh, for a couple of years now. I ran a first cohort about 14 months ago. And here's what it is in, in a short sentence. It's a training before you become a dad. It is an opportunity to come together with some other men who are exploring, either exploring the idea of becoming a father or are imminently about to become fathers. So this is boot camp before you become a dad. And it's a mix of men's work in deep inquiry with each other, along with a basic education of a bunch of the shit that we should probably think about, but not many people are telling us about before we become dads. So this goes many, many leagues deeper than your average uh, book. This is a dynamic deep dive uh, training to root out some of your imprints and patterns and really just inquire what might it look like to be a dad. This is the beginning of what a real rite of passage looks like. And um, this is a huge, huge moment in a man's life. It, and and we don't know what it even is going to mean. We don't know what it's, nor should we, probably. But this program is it, right in that perfect place to give men, give uh, these men about to be dads a shot. A shot at uh, some level of intentionality and care and knowing of themselves as they're about to undergo such a massive change in their own life. Super excited about it, and I'm especially excited that it's being taught by one of my best friends, Aaron Blaine. Aaron is a returned special forces operator. He is one of my closest friends, one of the best facilitators, and uh, honestly, just one of the best men that I know in my life. I'm going to be in there teaching some of the classes and supporting the cohort, but this is Aaron's show, and um, I'm just super excited about this. I think we got room for 12 guys. And it starts, let's see, what are the dates? It starts on April 24th, 2023, goes through June. Uh, you can find it on dandoty.com slash fatherhood ready. And last but not least here, I want to talk about Rite of Passage, which is a men's retreat times hunting camp. Uh, this is a program that launched last year, and it brings together six men and an opportunity to go through a connective process for four months and an educational process to learn all of the basics, the basic building blocks, becoming a big game hunter. Um, some of you may or may not know that, you know, hunting has been a big part of my life since I was young. In my 20s, I was the director and producer of a show called Meat Eater, which is an ethically based hunting show. Uh, and I got to travel all around the world hunting and making art out of these experiences. And 
hunting is one of those experiences in a man's life if he chooses to go there that really uh, means something in terms of connecting to a deeper sense of humanity a deeper sense of self and, and even a deeper sense of masculinity it's a beautiful brilliant intense and challenging program and we have just a couple spots left and it starts this april as well so that's dandody.com rite of passage check it out and now i bring you the conversation with Stephen Jenkinson. All right. Uh, good morning, Stephen. It's a, you know, it's absolutely a pleasure and something that I've been anticipating for a while. I have to be honest, I'm, I'm slightly nervous for this talk, but in, in a, you know, in a positive way. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, you're very welcome. You've got the, the up nerves. So those are good to have. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm just gonna, here's, here's my guess. My guess is that, um, you know, I, I will not bring much of a linear conversation. Maybe there'll be an arc, maybe, maybe a, some sort of arc will come out of this, maybe not. But, um, my intention just to share it plainly is to, uh, a couple of things I, I have, you know, what I'm up to in a very short sentence is, is I'm creating a space for conversations about the role of fatherhood, uh, what it means, where it's at, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe how to do it, not that that's coming from me, but at least a, a space for conversation, dialogue, exploration around a role, which to me, has an outsized impact and not a whole lot of attention put on it in a constructive way. Not a, there's not a whole lot of um, inquiry or education around it that uh, that would or affirmation or after sure yeah beautiful. Um, so that's what this is, and uh, I think that's an, enough of of a just a thematic overview. So okay, I'll stop babbling and ask you something here. Actually, one more quote, and this came from an interview of yours, I just recently said, to put it in maybe slightly more poetic lens, you shared on an inter uh, interview with Traver Bame or Bohm, um, you're talking about yoga, and how they take the simple act of breathing, which is something you're yeah. going to do anyway, and then they deepen it into something more. And you, you spoke about that uh, with speaking itself, like that's sort of you referenced that as some of your intention. And I guess I just wanted to share that's my intention with fatherhood here, right? We're, <laughs> I'm I'm in it. Many of us are in it and we're going we have to do it. We're going to do it anyway. And the hope here is just to deepen it. And um, I guess maybe it's helpful to share. I have a six-year-old son, a four-year-old son, and a one-year-old daughter. And so I'm very much in the, you know, in the in the full-on uh surrender <laughs> to, to the process. So um Conscription might be a better word than surrender. I like that. Yeah, yeah. conscription. Say, say one more. Say, say one more note about conscription versus surrender. Well, only that. I mean, surrender. You know, reeks of nobility. And if we could be honest with each other, three kids in, your nobility has taken some considerable backseat to <laughs> the exigencies of the moment, isn't it? So basically, it's the care and feeding operation times a thousand. So conscription seems to fit. It's almost as if you had a a, a vision into my life an hour ago as I was been, getting my children to school. Been there, baby. Been there. Yeah. 
Um, well, let's start there. I, tell me about your uh, your personal sort of overview um, as a parent. I'm actually I'm actually not sure. I wasn't able to locate it on bios. Um, yeah, to tell tell me about your. We don't have to go too deep into it. Give us a frame of your life uh, as a parent. Well, it began some time ago, and uh, I mean, I'm I'm not sure when it began. Now that I'm really thinking about it, uh, almost as if for the first time. I think your notion about parenting, of course, begins when you're the subject of somebody else's science experiment, parenting science experiment known as your own childhood, right? Yeah. This is where you get an idea of what parents are about. You don't get it from being one. There's a whole course of study, crash course of study called your own childhood. And I suppose you derive certain um, statutory uh, sort of pole stars that uh, organize you in some way. And then you develop a lot of aversive posture the things you think were unbecoming or didn't belong or were, you know, grossly unfortunate or not good enough or, you know, all of that. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it, it wouldn't appear that many of us are that generous where the parenting we are on the receiving end of mm -hmm. is concerned. I, I think probably that's a fair assessment sort of across the board when it comes to Anglo-North America, at least. So by the time we get to our own parenting years, the chances are very good that we're we're mobilized by a kind of a scheme of disaffection as much as anything else. Mm. And um, it's it's not clear that that's that bodes very well. And I would think one of the places we are uh, politically and socially can be traced back to what we're talking about right now. But if you're asking for my autobiography, uh, uh, I came to the affair in terms of human history late. I think I was 29 when I was, when my parenthood was concocted out of the sheer ether, out of the clear blue sky, you know? In other words, it wasn't a plan. Mm -hmm. It wasn't not a plan. It wasn't an anti-plan. It just was a surprise, which is ludicrous. I mean, the fact that you're suddenly a parent surprising you says something about you, that your capacity to expect things and to anticipate cause and effect and all that sort of thing. But it's such an enormous renovation of your, <laughs> of your you know, notion of selfhood that if you're not shocked, it's not clear that you get it. So... Um, so I was shocked, and then I was shocked again about 28 months later or 30 months later, something like that. And um, it was as if the first time I was, or we weren't sure, you could say, of the whole enterprise. So doubling down apparently contributes to your certainty on the matter. It, does, <laughs> it doesn't really. It just gives your prejudices an opportunity to free float and, uh, you know, across the normal boundaries that... Uh, that self-preservation would recommend. So, so there's the there's the sum total of being a parent is that your your personhood, I don't think survives, or at least yeah. probably we should say it shouldn't survive. Yeah. You know, your pre-parent state is a sacrificial lamb for parenting, 
isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it surely it is. And um, my kids did a very good job of annihilating my pre-parenting <laughs> uh, selfhood. And uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that they recognize themselves in that job description I just rendered, but um, but it's true. And um, so I did it twice uh, and remain in the in the clutches of being a, a father. My kids are in their 30s now. And so you would imagine that, uh, you know, the, the lion's share of parenting as we normally understand it would be done for all, you know, for good and for ill. But I, I find that it's not quite the case, that there's, a, there's, an, there's an obligation to continually not just reassess, but retranslate what being the parent of a 37-year-old or the father of a 37-year-old should properly uh, give to the world. Because hmm. that's what I think ultimately your job is as a parent, is to make the, your corner of the world a better place than it was before you got there. Yeah? And you're employing the vague willingness of your kids to, to respond to you as the opportunity to do that very thing. And so I, if, I was, if I was the kids listening to this, I wouldn't be wild at the notion that they're being inadvertently employed in, in uh, world-making mm. and that they, in that sense, don't have much of a choice. But I think not having a choice from time to time is a really proper character builder mm. because, you know, the, the fundament of life affords you no choice at all except opting in or opting out, it seems. And so opting out surely to God is not a real choice. Anyway, that's, uh, well, that's, what I, that's what I've been up to on some level or other for 36 or seven years. So I've been a parent half as long as I've been alive, just about. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I couldn't agree more on the point about the, the, uh, the benefit of not having a choice and to, to make it very present, uh, it makes breakfast time a lot easier. <laughs> if the children are not given a choice, <laughs> they yeah. do much better with it. Um, I, I heard, I've heard many of your talks with with Kimberly Johnson, and wow. you just you just referenced a a meme or a thought that uh, it's really stuck with me for for as long, I guess maybe a year now or something like that. And and you were talking about parenting, and I believe Kimberly asked you very simply, you know, kind of like, what the fuck, man, what do we do? How, how do we do this right now in this moment of time? Like, well, like what, what, what's your opinion on, on how to conceive of or, or even understand how one would parent in today's climate? And, and your response was that it was to, to create a, uh, a bubble or a safe zone um, with as much intention and care uh, to make conditions for them to, I guess I don't know what the verb would be, but to to live, to to, to grow, and um, so I don't know. One of the main questions, there's a couple of questions I have today that I've been asking a lot of people in this inquiry, and um, I think I'm more excited to hear your commentary um, than than pretty than almost anybody at this point in time. And so so here's 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 a starting off point. Uh, I'm 40. 
right? My wife's roughly the same age. We have our kids. Uh, we were uprooted by COVID. We um, we live in a, a lifestyle, or we we have a lifestyle where uh, you know we're not rooted to a place. Uh, we're looking for a place. We're looking to 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 have roots and settle down. Uh, we run our own businesses. We're, we're just, we're very much of the, you know, we have a lot of choice and, and freedom in a lot of way. We're, you know, we're not rich, but we're certainly affluent enough. Um, we are doing our best to uh, be connected with each other and the land and we're trying so hard. And I guess what I want to point to here is like on many levels, we're thriving, but on some levels, we're just getting our asses kicked. We're just getting our asses kicked. Uh, and as I survey and talk and connect to people, um, so are a lot of people. There's just this sense of incredible, um, Man, I, when I say the word hardship, it doesn't quite ring right. I don't know if it is hardship or not hardship, but um, the word that makes the most resonance with me is just getting our asses kicked. <laughs> and, you know, the I want to put a point on this and then I'm just curious that um, about this moment in time and uh, there is, there's no clear path, doesn't seem to be any clear path for what's right uh, and what's wrong anymore. And um, I feel like I'm completely failing at at putting a really clear question together here, but I'm just going to leave that mess hang out there and let you, <laughs> let you comment maybe. Okay. Uh... Well, I have a counter question for you just to elaborate a little bit of the mess that you just made. Yeah. This is what it is. Um, you, you seem pretty clearly you're ambivalent about making any declaration that you were doing anything other than thriving. Mm. You, weren't, you weren't very ambivalent about saying you were thriving, although I don't think that's the word that you used. Mm. But you're more than ambivalent in trying to acknowledge, quote, the rest of the story. Mm. What do you make of that? The first thing that comes to mind is that um, it's off the map. It's off the map of of self-understanding or uh, any conception of the way things are supposed to go. Sorry, I'm still not not too clear. What's off the map? The struggle. The struggle, the confusion, the uncertainty. Okay. Okay. It has nothing to do then with your... With your reluctance to understand yourself as in any way um, anything other than feasting on the upside of life because that's the reluctance that I heard mm. I just could have planted that and it's not in part of what you said but I think it is part of what you said that that there's a certain degree of I'm not sure we should call it social justice uh, rampages any longer but, mm. you know, I, I, people know in shorthand what I might be referring to by saying so. So I'll employ the term and say there's a degree of, degree of disqualification that um, falls upon the likes of you, me, uh, whereby 
there's it's really nothing but upside and if you don't see that then you're doubly trebly culpable as a result mm -hmm. that you don't have any problems worth having you don't have any problems mm -hmm. that get you to the front of the line how's that you don't have any mm -hmm. problems that you could with a straight face talk about to anyone other than your own kind so it's a kind of it, it provides a kind of silo this uh you know any any part of your life that's not working out for you is another thing to suck up in the current regime that's what i heard was that in there at all before i go that on is, and, yes I mean, go ahead that's that's ringing through my entire body so yes, okay that, that, that's what i thought that, yeah. yeah okay good so my powers of hearing are still there I'm just working through uh, a small conversation book that was put together by Sean O'Hagan, I think is how you pronounce his name, and Nick Cave. It's called mm -hmm. Faith, Hope, and Carnage. I think I'd recommend the book just in principle as a remarkable uh, meditation on the current regime through the lens of personal suffering. Mm -hmm. And the attempt to craft an art a self-understanding of what the artistic project might be given all of that. Um, as I'm doing so, I can see that uh, that Nick Cave in particular makes an enormous amount of the enabling power, the eventual enabling power of sorrow and mayhem and grief in particular, which he gives a lot of airtime to. You may or may not know he, he had a son who inadvertently uh, pitched off a cliff and killed himself uh, some, what would be six, seven years ago, something like that. And so this is very much, you know, this, his experience subsequently shot through with that extraordinary rampaging uh, degree of misery and happenstance, which is a wicked combination for, for uh, most people in the world who look like me. Happenstance and sorrow or ha the, the idea being that if if our life is going according to Hoyle sorrow seems to be an outsider presence mm. and doesn't really belong and uh you know you got your equivalent of the Norman Rockwell vision I mean I think most people do and uh and sorrow just just has no place mm. you know and grief has no place grief is a rupture in the natural order of things mm. Uh, one of the things I learned in the death trade is nothing could be further from the truth. And it has nothing to do with mayhem. It has everything to do with the fact that grief absolutely belongs. In fact, it belongs so resolutely that you could say that grief is the natural order of things. And by which, by this, I don't mean affliction. I, when I say grief, I don't mean pointless, endless, numbing, withering, endurance testing mayhem that's not what grief is mm -hmm. grief is the capacity given all of that to be had by life not mm -hmm. to be cowered by life not to be dominated by life simply to be addressed directly mm -hmm. full facial encounter with the real thing that's what grief is and humans are you know i mean there's a lot of religious traditions that say, look, man, there's there's things you don't study until you're a certain age. Mm -hmm. There's certain holy texts, there's certain mis mysterium tremendum. 
And uh, it's ill-advised that you go there before you're 40 or whatever the magic age is. Why is that? Well, apparently, so these uh, mystery traditions would understand it, that there's certain things that life must bring to you in order to take away from you that enable you to stand alongside the big stories without trying to defend yourself, <clears throat> without trying to prevail, such that you become their collaborator, not their adversary. That's what grief is. Grief is the capacity to say amen once you understand that amen has nothing to do with agreement, nothing to do with acceptance. It's more volatile and more nourishing than acceptance. Amen, as I've come to translate it, means sort of two declarations that go side by side. The first one is, listen, all in, I don't get it. I've tried to get it. I've tried to be gotten by it. I don't get it. It's too vast. It's too much. It's too big for this little self, which is absolutely accurate. That's the first half of amen. The second half of amen is, given all that, I'm in. Hmm. You see, it's not agreement. It's a different quality of uh, attenuation. You're partly a pitchfork, partly a divining rod, and you're humming as a consequence of this the primordial hum of the world. Yeah? Hmm. Okay. So that's a preamble to me responding to the particulars of the question that you've asked. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, the last three years count. The last three years are not interruption in regularly scheduled programming. After three years, you can't call it interruption. I mean, you know, the Second World War lasted for five. Mm -hmm. So we're well into the fourth year at this point. Well, not well into, just beginning the fourth year. And so it's not hard to imagine <clears throat> that the ways and means that have been set into motion as a consequence of all things COVID, all things plague-related, show no sign of abatement. And it has nothing to do with public health per se. I'm not really observing this as a metabolic reality any longer, which we know, I mean, everybody knows at this point, that given the, the fearfulness and the dread in the early going, which I was no stranger to, given all of that, the actual body count, to be very coarse about it, is nowhere close to even the mildest anticipation back in the day. Yeah. And yet, the consequences have only begun to unfold. So clearly, this is not a consequence of, quote, COVID-19, what we're both alluding to now. This is a consequence of we have so little time in with genuine calamity hmm. that we have very little uh, experience to bring to bear upon what does it ask of us. And so then it became a matter of what is it doing to us, not what is it asking of us. And in that sense, very similar to dying, <clears throat> minus the fatalities, minus the you know bodies in the street kind of anticipation. So... Hence the dread, because mm -hmm. in a death-phobic culture, which clearly yours and mine answer the description, there's other things too, but death-phobic, surely they are. 
and the death phobia was detonated by something that wasn't that fatal. So this tells you right away that the death phobia I've been talking about for an awful long time is not quite, it's not specific to a terminal diagnosis. Yeah. It's not suspicious, excuse me, specific to the suspicion that that's where you are in your life. In our way of living, it seems to have much more to do with limit, frailty, ending. Those seem to be the three horsemen of our current apocalyptic vision. Yeah. This is what prompted all the dread over and above the notion of dying and then, then not finding you for three days and you're alone in your kitchen kind of thing. Okay. Beyond that, which happened, I mean, let's acknowledge certainly it happened and it happened much more amongst the older generation than any other generation. That's certainly true too. So this is not me poo-pooing the consequences of the COVID-19 at all. But to observe, to, to reinforce my understanding that we have only begun to see uh, some of the, the real consequences. Uh, and they, they cut across so many lines. But I think one of the things you're responding to is driven by the kind of Immortal dread, it's a strange phrase, immortal dread that the pandemic raised up, at least in the West. I have no way of talking about any other place, but in the, in the corner of the world I know anything about, it remains. I mean, that remains. And one of the ways you can tell is the kind of roaring 20 sensibility of getting back to normal, yeah. you know, yeah. It's it's just unconscionable. No, no, it isn't. Sadly, it isn't unconscionable at all. The the deeply lamentable instinct that so many modernist people have to restore their unexamined sense of well-being. And so getting back to normal turned into what? 2019. I just can't believe that. That 2019 represents some kind of legitimate goal to reacquire like there was anything about 2019 which at the time <laughs> could stand the test of being our gold standard for psychological and and collective health and sanity yeah but that's where it is so one of the pushes and pulls that your little family is on the receiving end of surely is your obligation to reacquire a sense of steady as she goes as if that's the most legitimate response to the last three years. In your bones, you know it isn't. Parenting, both of us acknowledge, changes everything. Mm -hmm. Becoming a parent changes everything. Becoming a parent and trying to understand what that means in the course of a pandemic should equally change everything in a, in a similarly substantial way. It's not clear that there's any stomach for the change. And, you know, I'm not the only one to say it, but uh, I've heard very, very few people lament the lost opportunity, which the last three years has been to really, I mean, genuinely recalibrate what constitutes necessity and what constitutes the hand of God and fate and what, what looks like sanity and what should be wisdom. 
and the practice wisdom that should guide all of our lunge towards problem solving. Okay, this is my way of saying, hell yeah, in, in response to what you've said, hell yeah. It, it's not clear that it has much to do with parenting per se, but your kids aren't getting out of here alive. Yeah. And your kids aren't getting out of here untouched by the last three years. I mean, for at least two of them, they won't have a memory of a time before this. Mm -hmm. Maybe all three of them won't have a memory of a time before this. They will have an authorized COVID-induced memory of life. This is on par at least with the fact that my mother grew up in the, in the shadow of the Great Depression. And that marked her and her generation indelibly for good. And they never felt secure. They never believed in the institutions, but not because they doubted the veracity of the thing. They doubted the capacity of the thing to self-regulate, probably, and for good reasons. And I grew up in the shadow of the, uh, the mushroom cloud, yeah. you know, and uh, it was there all the time, especially when we didn't think it was there. And any twitch in the geopolitical firmament went right there, see? So it behooves us to wonder what this is in the process of doing to the kids. Because COVID, not, not COVID as a disease or a virus, the, the pandemical chimera is coming to our kids through us, through us, through our responses, our reactivities, and so on. This is what it reminds you of, and then I'll stop talking. It seems like a crime to interrupt this podcast, but I'm just going to step in for just a second here and tell you about a free offer that we have for you. I have a free audio course called How to Be a Better Dad. That's a bit presumptuous. It's maybe a bit arrogant, uh, but it's a title that <laughs> that works for this. And what it is is, a, is an audio course that is delivered to you like a podcast. Um, it's completely free. You put in your email address. It comes up in your in your inbox, and you get access to a bunch of audio tracks. There's some exercises, some meditations, and just some general inquiry that's intended to to support you um, on your path of being a father. So if you're already a dad, it makes sense. If you're interested in being a dad, that might make sense too. So you can find that just on the homepage of my website, dandody.com. You can scroll around, and at some point you'll be assaulted with a pop-up that says sign up for this free audio course. Uh, so check it out. Many's the time when I was working in the death trade that well-intended parents would ask the following question. Did I think they should be bringing their, their young kids, say four-year-old, to, uh, to grandpa's bedside now that he's in his dying time? And they were hoping that they could enlist my my sympathies and my understanding that this is indeed a legitimate question to ask, but they were asking the wrong guy if that's what they're looking for. And so I would say, I would nod, you know, uh, with some apparently conspiratorial affirmation that I would say, right, why wouldn't you? In other words, let's turn this into a genuine inquiry since it's begun as a question we can do better with the question than should I bring my four-year-old to the deathbed? Why wouldn't you? Why is it a question? And then the, the standard defense mechanisms would arise as you'd expect. And one of them was grandpas look pretty, pretty rough now. 
Well, indeed he does, uh, which is part and parcel of the deal. And uh, But still, this doesn't answer the question why you wouldn't bring a four-year-old to see something rough. The next answer would be something in the order of, um, I don't, I, I want him to remember grandpa the way he was. Bingo. So now there's an authorized memory hovering in the middle distance, isn't there? There's certain things that a four-year-old is supposed to be able to remember, and they're all unbesmirched. They're all untouched by the slings and arrows of time passing. So you can imagine then, and I, I'm not even hit the, the tip of the iceberg of the story yet, but you can imagine in that scenario, there's a longing to, to cover your child, to not let life in, as if it's going to be hard enough as it is without letting life in without any realization that the failure to let life in is probably what's going to guarantee that it's much harder than it needed to be. Okay. So I say, um, so we know that, and that when you go to the funeral home, everybody's playing a tape loop now. And everybody knows that the tape loop is the revised standard version of grandpa. That's the authorized, that's the memories we get to have now. And there he is laughing. There he is throwing a stick for the dog. There he is, you know, it's all upside. It's all wonderful. And there, there he is sitting there drinking a beer on the back porch, whatever it is. But God forbid one of the tape loops should include grandpa, you know, slack jawed and drooling in his deathbed. This clearly is not grandpa, not the one that needs to be remembered. We have no obligation to that man at that time. This is all in what he's saying. This, this concerned father. And that's not the best. This is the best. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he would say, I don't want my son to be, you know, traumatized. You know, big word today, traumatized. And I would nod again. I mean, who wants a four-year-old to be traumatized? And then I would wonder out loud with his father where the locus of this trauma is to be found. From his point of view, it's in a four-year-old looking at somebody that he knows or knew suddenly unrecognizable without ever inquiring of the four-year-old whether or not he recognizes that old slack-jawed man in the bed, which he clearly does. Of course he does. There'd be no trauma concern if there was no recognition that this is indeed some, some grandpa, some grandpa. And I submit to you, and to, to this father in absentia, the following. It isn't what's in the bed that will traumatize your four-year-old. Here's what traumatizes your four-year-old. Your son is looking back and forth between grandpa's laying in the bed and how you're conducting yourself in, in grandpa's presence. And he can't make them work together. Mm. There's the the dire but very real circumstance that's in the bed. Mm -hmm. And then there's this business as usual persona in the form of your father. Yeah. Okay. And you've explained to the four-year-old that you have a father too. And that's your father in the bed. But your four-year-old can't track the, the sensibility of fatherhood in how you're responding to your father, you see. So he has to choose now, your four-year-old, between, between 
stories of life. And one of them is you get to disassociate disassociate when things aren't that great. And that's called more more than enough, that you're certainly entitled to disassociate. On the one side, on the other side, there's this there's this real thing whose claim upon you is beginning to fade. And you can't figure out what the etiquette of conducting yourself in the teeth of the storm should actually be. Hmm. And so the child has to choose between these versions of the way it is. Hmm. And, you know, a child like any uh, vulnerable thing, life form, will genuflect in the direction of its next meal, if you know what I mean by that. Yeah. In others, the dependencies rule the day don't they? And so ultimately the child opts for your take on reality. Not right away, but over time, abandons his his own understanding of the fidelity he owes to his dying grandfather for the sake of getting by with you and your take on things. And this is deemed to be responsible parenting. And I submit to you, this is where the traumas come from. So you know why I'm telling you the story now, because if the realities of of a pandemic circumstance and all that it means come to your children through the likes of you and me. And we're not conducting ourselves accordingly because we're well within our rights to be hyper-reactive or or under-responsive in the extreme in order to manage our own anxieties. Then somewhere, somewhere, somehow, the quality of our parenting has to come into some serious investigation. being in the mid i feel i feel stuck in the middle i feel stuck in the middle of being honest with the falling apart and still clinging i guess clinging to to i i guess like i've heard you say many times to hope i feel like maybe i've just sort of disassociated as i've heard you speak about that before but um and I guess the, the question I have or the curiosity is, is just like, what's it look like? What, is it, what does it look like to parent and fall apart at the same time? What does it look like to, to be honest here and still keep shit together? Maybe that's, I, you know, I, I even see the problem with that question, keep shit together, right? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck, yeah. it's just like, okay, then I'm in, but what? Yeah. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in, but the first part of amen belongs, you see. First part of amen is, it's really more vast than I counted on. It's too much for the likes of me. Okay, so you can run with that, and you have, and perhaps you are at this very moment. And it's understandable, and let's just allow that in. And I won't give it any further airtime, because there's something else to talk about. Mm-hmm. Now, the chances are very good that at least some of the parenting decisions that you've made, the two of you have made over the last four or five or six years, come from an understanding you have of, quote, what's wrong with our corner of the world. That'd be my mm-hmm. guess. Just mm-hmm. as much they come as a result of the parenting you yourselves received and you made certain promises, didn't you, certain vows that you'd never duplicate the shit that you saw, etc. So first, in no particular order, first thing, when you throw under the bus that from which your parenting lessons is derived, 
be not surprised that being thrown under the bus is the next in the sequence. Okay? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So if this is your example to your kids, to make sure the rupture between you and the generation that preceded you is complete, be not surprised then that your kids understand rupture to be one of their obligations they have to life. Mm -hmm. It goes way beyond differentiation in the psychological sense mm -hmm. and turns it into a kind of moral compass that denies the legitimacy of anything that preceded them. And that should sound familiar to you because that's up and on its hind legs in every rancorous allegation of discourse that you can tune into. The disqualification of what preceded you. No. I'm not saying that there's not grounds for that kind of grievance. Clearly, there are grounds for that kind of grievance. But we're not talking about whether you're right in your grievance. I'm not. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the consequences of being right. And one of the worst things that can happen in a grievance-addled culture is that all the grievance brigade is legitimized unquestioningly. And the notion that they assume any responsibility for their own grievance is an early and permanent casualty of wondering about these things. Okay. So where I'm headed with this is to say to you the following. I would credit the real possibility that part of your parenting practices were predicated on the notion that you could make a bit of a better world by making better people out of your kids. Okay. And noble enough as an intent. Questionable as to the mechanics of how to actually make that happen, given the fact that you're a product not of the great leap forward. And your take on being a parent is not a product of the great leap forward. Your take on being a parent comes from a lot of stuff that you don't believe in any longer if you ever did, yeah. right? So you follow what I'm saying, because you do. can hear where this goes next. Your concern about personally falling apart while trying to keep it together for the sake of your kids locates you in the center of the storm, locates you in the center of the calculation. And this is your poverty. Okay. Your poverty comes from the fact that you are a parent in an age where the devolution from the commons and from the community understand, understanding of community or village-mindedness yeah. has devolved so fiercely and so rapidly that the nuclear family clearly can't bear up against the, uh, the consequence of the disappearance of the commons which is never more adequately demonstrated than during the course of a pandemic. Yeah. Where you're allegedly the building block of the way it is. Yeah. Your little nuclear arrangement there. Okay. Now, I think you know what comes next. Yeah. The devolution to the nuclear family has another stage. The nuclear family devolves to the sanctity and to the unchallengeable agency and sovereignty of the individual. And you're trying to raise children 
in a circumstance that doesn't believe in the efficacy of family per se. It believes in the sanctity of the individual instead. And your principal responsibility is to get out of the way of the emerging sovereignty of your three little geniuses. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. You know it is. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying there's not other things. There are other things. But that is surely there. Yeah. And this reminds me of a circumstance that's historical, that pertains to this continent. So when people who look like you and I washed up on shore here and claimed to discover something and proceeded accordingly with the cover story being that we're looking to be free. And the first thing we do is deny the capacity, the lived capacity to be free to whoever we find here. So it it lends a, a considerable degree of discreditation to the whole arrangement right out of the chute, okay? But anyway, we wash across the continent, do we not? Generation after generation after generation. Not so many of them, by the way. Not like biblical number of generations. Countable number of generations. Almost on one hand, countable. Certainly on two. And we wash on shore because we're still looking. Because we still haven't found what we're looking for. Because, 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 oh God, people got there before us. We got to keep going. And so, and it becomes, in your country, so-called manifest destiny. Isn't it? And now here we go, and then we hit the other side. Oh, and with the exception of a few islands for, you know, exercise our right to continue out into Honolulu and beyond, something happens. A kind of entropic consequence happens. We, we hit the wall, if you will, and wash the other direction. But we don't go back into the continent. We pile up on the West Coast in this condition. And where we go now for more fracking and more open pit mining, where do we go now? And the answer is the inner soul, the inner life of the individual. That's where it goes next. That's the new promised land. And you're a product of those times, as am I. That's what got lionized as much as anything else did in the 60s. And it's no surprise now that it's ayahuasca for all a generation later. Okay, so I'm suggesting to you this then. That's a terribly long preamble to a rather <laughs> short amble, but here we go. I mean, it was a big question, a big non-question that you asked. Yep. As you say, just a bit of a mess, no? Okay, mm-hmm. so how do you superintend the, the undoing of that which no longer should be? Do you get to superintend the ending of what no longer should be and at the same time be okay? Is this another kind of NIMBY situation, not in my backyard, you know, that the world, as we have, you know, the current regime, the neo-capitalist, that whole thing, if it's coming apart at the seams, can it please come at the part at the seams at the end of the street, beginning there and fanning out from there? See what I'm saying? Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. So what's it supposed to look like then? If you had your druthers... Would you be okay in the teeth of the undoing? Is that the is that the the gold standard now? I mean, what's it supposed? You know, where does this culture that's supposed to end live? Does it just end up in the? Does it just live in the macro structures? Does it just live on the headlines? Or is it possible that it lives as emphatically in all the little choices that you make, including many of your parenting choices? It lives there too. 
So how's it going to meet its maker, if you will? How is it going to stop having the claim it's made upon us that's resulted in so much ecological mayhem and other kinds as well? What part, what part can our undoing possibly play in the undoing? Okay, so until that gets asked for real, and the understanding that, that should blossom from that is we have a responsibility to the endings, okay? Not guilt, responsibility. Hmm. Yeah. And we've got to find a way to translate endings into how we live when it's time to go buy milk at the store. Yep. All of that. All of the shoulds that we infect our kids with. All of the shouldn'ts, all of the book is supposed to wide open and quoting chapter and verse, and all the book of not supposed to quoting chapter and verse, and without ever wondering where that came from, and where did all that get written down, and it got written down in a time of plenty. You know that it did. Hmm. Okay, so if we're willing for this not to be a time of plenty, which you know, God willing, we might be willing, some of us sometimes in a fitful way then we have to translate no longer optimal. We have to translate, we have an obligation to stop growing, including the personal growth variety of growing is what I'm referring to. Okay, so there's been weirder times than this, yeah. but you haven't lived them. Yeah. Neither have I. So this is our weird. Now, the word weird is an old English word, and you know what it means? It's, it's typically translated not as weird as we mean it today. Wirt means something closer to fate. That, that's the translation in the oldest text we have where the word appears. It means something like there's a certain tendency that things have, and they're going to likely go in a certain direction. This doesn't preclude how you're going to be while these things go in a certain direction. It just means your hope's kind of irrelevant. And if your hope is kind of irrelevant, then on that matter, at least, I've been right for at least a dozen years. Hmm. Apropos of hope. Would that we get to the point where our hope is as irrelevant as our... Well, I was going to say something unkind. As our uh, blue box recycling at the corner, I'm not saying it's irrelevant. I'm sure. just saying, given the scale of what we're contending with, do it by all means, but understand its limited efficacy. Yeah. Same thing with hope. Take it for a walk again for the umpteenth time, understanding that hope and hopeless are not miles apart. Where you find one, you find the other. They're unidentical twins, you see. One mm -hmm. requires the other one to mobilize. And, you know, try them both one more time. See how it goes. See if you really want to, you know, pony up for another installment of the membership in the club of Hopeful Hopeless. Mm. It's something you can actually wonder about instead of something that you obligated to. And I learned that, you know, from sitting across from so many dying people who are obliged to be hopeful about their dying. And all I did was, what, was observe what it did to them. Mm -hmm. 
not what it could have done to them, what it did to them, to be hopeful about what was happening anyway. You see the parallel with oncoming All the way. social All crises. The way. And, and yeah. 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 Okay, man, your turn, your show, your turn. Where you go? <clears throat> well, uh, without taking too much of a uh, label, without labeling things too much, what I feel here is a, uh, first of all, just an immense amount of gratitude for for you sharing this and I think you can tell, but it's, uh, I wondered coming in all my colleagues are, are crying in these interviews and, um, I'm, I'm, I'm receiving, receiving that, uh, you know, when you, sh when you shared immortal, what was this immortal dread? Like you, that was the most accurate name for a feeling mm. or experience, yeah. uh, that mm. I could, uh, just, it shocked me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also feel there's this other longing in me, which is much the reason why I'm having these conversations about fatherhood, because in the midst of this need to let go of hope and to recognize what's actually occurring, there is, there's a longing for, I guess, what maybe is accurately called fathering, <laughs> or, you know, a perspective from someone far more experienced and wise than myself, right? And, you know, if there's, there's something else I'm noticing happening in, in, in the same breath as all of the rest of this, and I don't know if it's related or unrelated, but there is some, something is occurring within a generation of fathers, roughly my generation, where there is a, there's either more of a draw or closeness of real connection with, with our children, or there's at least the possibility of a, uh, a more present. I think that's an accurate way to say it. More than what though? What came before? What's so the what were, yeah, that's, that's what I said what came before. Yeah. yeah. And again, but this is, sorry, I recognize sorry. I have such, yeah. One second. You don't mean more than you did last week. You mean more than came to you when you were their age. Is that right? You're right. You're right, but you're, changing, you're changing my mind as you say it. But yes, that is what I meant. Yes. Okay, please go on with the question then, or the, the issue. Well, the, yeah, the, the question... <laughs> There, there hmm. I, I'm curious to hear your perspective on the role of fathering, both to our children, but also the culture at large. It, I have grown up in this, in this small window of feeling like it's been quite absent which is not fair. I, I recognize that as I say it, like I, I was, I was fathered as well. So I'm speaking of something which you named early, which was that this is in reaction to, or, you know, I guess, yes, it's a, a grievance. I, I feel that as I'm saying, it's a grievance. Yeah. Um, so maybe I'm exploding my question even as, as I'm asking it, but, but I, I am curious about 
I have found something of, of beauty and purpose in this day and age to reorient. Wait a second. There is this, there is this role of father. There is, there is this unique thing. And it does seem like it has, um, it's important, right? It's important. I mean, I already feel like perhaps my, my perspective is shifting even just, just in the course of our conversation here. But the question I had intended to ask was, man, it's not even, the question doesn't even make sense anymore. Mm -hmm. Listen, to, for what it's worth, it's far from easy to be a questioner or an interviewer and at the same time subject yourself to the ongoing real-time consequences of what you're hearing in response to your question. It just yeah. isn't. Yeah. So that's it. You're just acknowledging and detonating that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is, this is what real time looks like. Yeah. And you know, you know, in your bones that even though we've never met, well, we did meet, sorry, once briefly yeah. in steakhouse yeah. somewhere, mm -hmm. but we don't know each other. And that doesn't seem to be required. That a time in biographically is not really essential to the to the story before us right mm -hmm. so you know what's happening right now which is you've asked me to talk about this subject mm -hmm. and although we haven't really talked about the subject yet my way of talking about all these other things is me doing what you're asking me about I'm not waiting until we get to the subject to be that guy. You see? I do. I I'm do. that guy now. Yeah. Okay. This is yeah. what it sounds like when you don't have to talk about the subject ad nauseum to get the subject in the room and in the story. Yeah. You have to conduct yourself in the presence of it without talking about it over and over and over again as a discrete subject. Because fathering is not a discrete subject. And this is why it's becoming the kind of tightly tight knitness of the word is becoming unraveled. And you realize, God damn it, father is not really a noun. Father is a verb. It's what you do. It's not who you are. It's what you do. So it's possible not to do it and have three kids knocking the furniture around the house. It's more than possible not to do it. Right. Because you refuse to inhabit the obligations that go along with the status from one moment to the next. Or you opt in with one kid, opt out with the other two, or, you know, whatever it is. Right? So look, mm -hmm. it's not a question of tough love, for God's sake. In a time like this, it's a question of tough magic. Okay, that's what this is. This is magic. It's spell breaking. And there are casualties to breaking spells. There really are. You don't get to feel okay if you want to take on the work. There it is. And if I look okay compared to you, it's just because I've been here before. See, so this is not... I'm not a stranger in a strange land with what you're asking me about, even though we don't know each other. 
So this is not me being blasé. This is me being as concerned and as caught up in these matters as you are, at least as much as you are, probably more so. Pass through the filter of me asking myself for the umpteenth time, what does my time need of me now? That's the only reason I'm probably still around because there was lots of opportunities for me not to be here. None of my own choosing, I should say, but just, you know, the slings and arrows and all the rest, illnesses and all the rest. So I have to translate what being in my grace time is for. And until you enter yours, you won't do that kind of translating because you'll be on autopilot called, I'm this age. I'm fucking indestructible. Nothing can really undo me. Well, okay, there's the last three years, but eventually we'll get past that and we'll get into, and then the kids will be teenagers. Oh God. But listen, we'll get through that and, st- you know, and all yep. these, these hypertension stages that we allegedly go through. Hmm. Here's the thing. You'll never not be claimed by the obligations of fatherhood. Never. And you'll have to translate what that looks like when you're a man of my age or older, that's what I'm doing now. I don't have to meet your kids to act on your kids' behalf while I'm talking to you. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. Okay. I'm deeply appreciative. Yeah. Yeah. The um, the question, uh, what, what is the world asking of me? Is that is that how you phrase it? The world or what is the moment or what is the time asking of me? Yeah, it's familiar. It's familiar to me, and it's it's uh, it's a shade near, or it's it's similar to uh, to something I've I've done my best to ask for a long time. Um, <clears throat> I I feel like, to the best of my knowledge that concept of it's not going to feel good. I'm not going to be okay to do if we're going to do the work, right? If we opt in, if we say amen and we go for this as a dad or as a person, as just as a being here, my sense is there are, um, I'm not the only one willing. There's willingness, right? That that's something I do see across the board, a lot of willingness and then a whole lot of what the fuck do we do? Like, what's the next, what is one step Right. What is one step to 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 break the spells? Rough magic. It's I'm tracking that so so well. And as you as you ask the question in that in that block, what does the world ask of me? I felt something of a resonance there. That's a question I can work with. That's that's a question I can I can look into, and maybe that might guide guide a step or a decision. Sure. Think about what the phrase actually means. What do we do now? Okay. Now you, mm-hmm. you and I both know that in the context of an interview, you know what it's a request for. Mm-hmm. It's a request for more. Translation, mm-hmm. everything that has preceded the request is inadequate. Mm-hmm. Every answer I've given, every response I've given is inadequate officially inadequate, now that you've asked, what do we do now? (laughs) Right? Okay. Sure, it's there. Of course, it's there. Not good enough, baby. Keep working. More milk. (laughs) 
more tits, right? <laughs> so, okay. So here's my plea. Listen to the actual phrase. What do we do now? What tense is that? It sounds like it's talking about the future. It's present. What do we do now? It's present tense. The answer is in the present tense. So it's not a matter of hypothetics. I don't think mm. that's a word. But maybe it is for the moment. This is a question of observation, not a question of aspiration. What do we do now is observable. Mm. It's not a matter of opinion. It's there. You answer it every day. You do what do we do now. You do that. So my answer has constantly been not to defend myself when I'm asked these kinds of questions, but to turn them into something that is observable already. What have you done? Practice there. Don't practice fortune telling. No. Practice fortune recognition. Okay? What have you done with all the nows before this one? I've never put it that way, but I, I kind of like it. It's a good t-shirt. Well, <laughs> what have you done with all the other nows before this one that you're asking me about? Okay? Yeah. Don't blame me, because the answer is not so very you know compelling and becoming. Yeah. Check it out. I'm not here to blame anybody. But what is, is. And if we have failed up until now to conduct ourselves as if this shit is on, be not surprised that you generate yet another iteration of what do we do nows? Hmm. Okay. But, okay, so, <laughs> I forget the numbers. I might have to make them up. But I think I'll be in the neighborhood. Every year, they say 65 million people die. Every year. Half of them are children under five years of age. Mm. Okay? Every two and a half years, more people are born than die. Those are blocks of statistics. I don't know how you would ever conduct your life as if every year 65 million people die. But we're, we're fans of information now, so there you go. So here's my question. Can you track this understanding in anything that you'll do the rest of today? Is it going to matter? Because, you know, you and I both know that the first thought we, if we have any compassion left in the compassion tank, and somebody tells you every year, my God, 65 million people die, then we say, poor buggers. Don't we? Some part of our compassion goes in that direction. Poor buggers. Yeah. Of course, it's never us. So in other words, 65 million opportunities for you to get it right. To realize, well, maybe this is your year, and maybe it isn't. The odds, given what part of the world you live in and your standard living, so on, suggest probably not this year. Probably not next year. Probably. 
But with every increasing increment of years, the probably not this year thing starts to wear away. And at a certain point, you get to the proceedings where you say, maybe this year. Ah, maybe you're one of the 65 million. So here's my question. In the time that elapses between today, I mean today, Monday, mm-hmm. and that time when you join a different rank, mm-hmm. you're in the realm of maybe, not probably not. Can we find anything in the way you've lived that seems to be informed by the current, present, manifest understanding that that shit is true? Because if we can't, baby, you're going to have so much to regret someday, you're not going to be able to live with it. Because your death was a noble thing, you see? Mm. And the ending of this regime and your investment in it is a knowable thing. I don't know the when of it, I don't pretend to know what it's going to look like, but I'm I'm fairly sure that the marks are going to be evenly, not evenly, evenly, liberally spread across the populace, the markings of such a thing. Are we conducting ourselves accordingly? There. I can tell you, I would never have had a job in the death trade if people lived their lives as if they were going to die. There would have been nothing for me to do. But the tragedy, the comic tragedy of the circumstance is that they could have known and they clearly didn't know. How could they not have known? Because your dying is not a piece of information. That's how. It's It's a consequential meaning thing. That's what it is. So is the consequence having its way with you? Is it bleeding into your days? And I'm going to go into some tender territory now. When you look at those kids, do you realize what you've done to them? That once upon a time, they weren't here among us. And as a direct consequence of you dragging them across the threshold, now they are. Not just in a, in a hairy, troubled time, although that's enough. But you brought them into this world so that they could, if everything works out according to your plan, die without you. Now, if that's not in your fathering, Mm -hmm. it's not clear your fathering, not to me. Mm -hmm. See, that's fathering right there. Mm -hmm. So how do you translate that? This is what you did to them. Right? Yeah. You brought them into the world, and it's such your corner of the world when everything traditional is unfavorable. That includes parenting. You know that it's true. You're the booby prize for kids, right? But what, you know, if you just get out of the way, then they'll have a pristine and sovereign self and to replace your presence in their lives, and that'll be much better for them. That's the deal. I'm not agreeing that this is true, but it's certainly so. Okay. So we got a few things here and before us we can lament about, right? And I am doing so, but I'm not paralyzed by the lament. No. I'm mobilized by the lament, you see. That's what you're hearing now. But it doesn't make it easier. Right. It just brings it forward. Bringing it forward is what the word crisis actually means. The word crisis means 
I mean, I'm translating liberally here, but the gist of it is, all right. So once upon a time, there was a fable called infinite possibility. Everything's possible. And we went further with that. We said, everything's possible, and that means everything's likely. But nobody stopped and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mm -hmm. No, by definition, if everything's possible, then most of those things are not likely. That's what it means, actually. So, so much for infinite possibility in the horizon and personal growth and all the rest. So what a crisis does is it winnows the sense of infinite possibility until the point where there's actually real choices to be made. Not an infinite realm of possibility like a, like a big box store. And when that reduction takes place, you're in the midst of a crisis now, understanding that what it means is this. Now the choices are real, not hypothetical. Now the time of choosing is upon you, not hypothetical, not optional. And you will choose. That's what a crisis means. That's mm -hmm. what it actually does. Now you can hear where the, the disavowed part of crises come from. The, the, the dark or odious tone of crisis come from an understanding that you don't get full reign of your personal volition in crisis time. Your, your range of possibilities are, are tied and tethered and chained to the particulars of place and time. Yeah. And as such are not infinite, they're indigenous instead. That's what the word indigenous means, particular to the localities and the gods of place and time. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So if we work really hard, we might come up with a good crisis now. But that's what it's going to take. Mm. And this is why the question, what do we do, is not hypothetical. It's observable. Mm. What are we doing? What have we done? From those two answers, you can very likely generate as easily as I can an answer to the question, what do we do? What do we do is really means what are we likely to do given our track record? Yes. And that's how I hear the question every time I'm asked it. Mm -hmm. What are we likely to do? That's not pure conjecture. There's something we can rely upon to give us a fairly good clue as to what our habits seem to dictate yeah. and our habits of aversion are so insanely powerful that the likelihood is that this time next week it's more of the same yeah. more of the same with less reason why sooner or later something's got to give when you keep doing what you're doing and you have increasing signs that it just won't do <laughs> Where's the where you don't break even anymore? You see. Yep. And before you know it, you're on a podcast, and somebody's asking you this, <laughs> and now you feel bad for all the times you asked your guests, "What do we do now?" Uh, mm -hmm. And you got to laugh. Laughing absolutely belongs. You know, when you're laughing now, it's not out of derision. No. No, no it's not. You're laughing out of recognition. Oh, yeah, all the way. And out of an increasing sense of grief. Because you can laugh in grief, and you better.
And still those yeah. questions are before us. Given our track record, what are we likely to do this time next week? Yeah, there's a, a new texture that I'm just experiencing here. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a stranger to grief, but I do recognize how, how, how much I mobilize against it on the regular basis. Sure. Much yeah. more so now that you have kids. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah? Gosh, that that brings a lightning bolt of emotion. Yeah? yeah. That's deeply affirming to hear. Yeah. Like, now the like kids really, are in the house. Really, Now the kids are in the house. Grief gets the spare room out back. Oh, geez, that hits. I'm here for you, that's man. A, yeah, you're really giving me a gift right now. That that's 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 right at the heart. Because it's felt that way. It really has. It's like, yeah, something really changed when I had kids. And it, it's like, I kicked that fucker. You're right. I kicked it out of the house. But when, yeah. you, when, you, when you say the word mobilizing, God, that makes sense. Mm. It makes so much sense. I, I, sense isn't it hits it really hits so now picture this if you would now you got your dying grandpa is in the bed yeah but you're not four years old now you're the father in between the youngest and the oldest generation but now it's not an actual dying grandfather that's in the bed it's a certain understanding of what your kids deserved and one of the reasons you brought him into the world is in the bed. And it's mm -hmm. dying. Yeah. And how shall you be with your child increasingly older on the one side and the, all the could-have-beens wasting away and dying one or two or five at a time? Yeah, because yeah, that's the time you're in. I See, I'm not it's in that time. See, I'm because I'm older and my kids are the age that they are, I'm not standing between them and the way it is. My kids now are very much part of the way it is. And they've participated as they saw fit in everything we've been talking about, you see. So I'm in a different place now. But your question invites me to stand there in the in-between place that you occupy along with you. Because I can imagine the oncoming culture as either the wasting away old man in the bed or the child on the other side. I can see them both in the same apparition. The understanding being that the oncoming culture is not quite yet formed. And in that sense, youngish. But all of the things that shouldn't continue about our way of life, aged, on the take, having seen their day and therefore dying in the bed, you see? And you go back and forth between realizing, God, it's not fixed, actually. It's not, it's not clear and mathematical and precise. It requires a degree of, of uh, agility of your spirit to understand what's being asked of you and what place do you occupy. And you understand that for the moment you occupy this position, but even now, it's in the process of giving way to something else. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're a, an elder in training. 
masquerading as a present-day father type. <laughs> I don't say masquerading. It's not the right word. But uh, for no, the it's moment... Right. It's, it's fine. It makes for sense. The, for the moment, you're passing for that. Yeah. But this is why. So you can occupy that Im impossible to work things out position that I just described to you to the point where you will be an old man trying to preside over the wasting away and the dying away of every element of the dominant culture you know no longer belongs, should not continue to enjoy its sway. Hmm. And your kids born into that time are perhaps the last generation of its beneficiaries. Hmm. Now, how are you going to wean them off being the beneficiary of an odious culture? Hmm. You see? So this is where it comes from when I made the observation some time ago that your kids deserve less than you had when you were their age. Yeah. Much less. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on board with that. I am so grateful for you today. I, uh, you, you put into sensible words, the big, the big question and position that I've been inhabiting and, and really just, like I said, I, I mean, this inquiry, this, the, the, <laughs> I, I think I was not wrong. I had the premonition that, that um, speaking to you on this topic was, you know, important and um, I'm just really grateful, really, really, really appreciative. And uh, me too. That's the beautiful so, thing about gratitude, you know. Gratitude dissolves the uh, alleged boundary between the one who's grateful and the one who's, quote, the, the prompter of the grace, if you will. Yeah. No, the, as soon as great gratitude's flowing, everybody's in it and there's no origin for it and there's no ending of it. But for the moment you get, you get, get to say, wow, this'll do <laughs> yeah. for the moment. This'll do. Yeah. yeah. It's the great reminder that given everything we've said, gratitude, like joy are completely doable and they belong to, we just don't have recourse to one in order to mollify the other. No. They're not methadone. Sorrow's not methadone. Joy's not methadone. Well, Stephen, I am I'm not gonna muddy this up with any more <laughs> words of my own other than gratitude and thanks and i i do know um i want to do the 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 thing at the end uh to share this podcast is coming out tomorrow probably and and i know you are um headed i, I believe back out on the road this year uh oh, yeah. would you speak, speak most, for a minute the year. yeah would you speak for your big adventure it maybe that's not the right word but for what you have <laughs> coming up oh man well uh a couple of weeks ago myself and gregory huskins who I do the Knights of Grief and Mystery Project with. We're in a recording studio in Malibu, and uh, the rudiments of a new record are now, they now exist, and it's something for us to work on through the 
next little while. And so God willing, by the end of the year, we have a record that's nominally concerned with love. Really, for the first time, we've given ourselves a particular mm. whole start to, to govern ourselves by, yeah? yeah? So, but not, not. I mean, romantic love will be in there by inference. But uh, given the times, probably a different inflection on the matter. So there's that. And uh, then there's all kinds of grief and mystery touring that's going on. Uh, the whens of it, I, I can't tell you, but because yeah. uh, I don't remember. But I know we're in... We're in, uh, in uh, Israel, and we're in Poland, and we're in Scandinavia for the first time, and uh, Australia and New Zealand towards the end of the year, Canada and the U.S. in between. Uh, I'm going to uh, Tuscany, Italy to do a month-long residence and try to finish a book. That's a first for me, to work according to a deadline. And then I'm teaching the book at the end of the session. So I understand there's still seats available for that doing. And that's about um, belong. It's called Never Land. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a meditation on the consequences of belonging, seeking to belong, not quite sure how to belong, ownership instead, the actual realities of the dirt under your fingernails, mm -hmm. agriculture and culture, the swoon of domestication, just to name a few. Mm -hmm. That come from my farming experience mostly. Um, somewhere in the oh yeah, so there's a book that hopefully will ensue from that. On the back shelf, there's a book about matrimony, which has been waiting for me for years. And uh, maybe before the end of the year, I can um, get it into shape. Maybe and maybe it becomes another book. Uh, Kimberly Johnson and I will probably continue to tour a time or two during the balance of the year on behalf of the book Reckoning that she and I did together. So they say you're supposed to take it easy as you get older. Clearly the memo got lost in the trash bin. And so uh, until it's probably forced upon me, uh, slowing down that is, I take this as, as a, an unexpected opportunity, perhaps the last great opportunity for me to conduct myself as if my energy is available to me you know, on demand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I know you're, I think the closest you're coming here is Boston or Nova Scotia on either side. So um, I aim to, well, I will, I will uh, be purchasing some tickets for my wife and I, and uh, Great. thank you for all you do. Thank you for what you've done. And, and, and thank you for this. And uh, yeah, I, it's already been felt and said, but immense gratitude. And, uh, thank you man thank yeah. you for the invitation all right be well thank you you bet bye okay i don't want to say much at the end here i just feel like more words wouldn't be that helpful i'm really appreciative of your time your attention please do check out steven and his work and please uh stick around we're going to be continuing this this deep dive excavation of modern life, of fatherhood, of masculinity, and all these things. And uh, you're an important part of that. So thanks a lot. <laughs>